You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 204. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. It's great to be back with you again this week, joined by a fully recharged Mr. Aaron Dunn after his South American salsa tour. This week, Aaron has a great segment for you and one that is music to my ears. The idea was taken from Warren Buffett's 2022 shareholder letter, his annual letter, where Buffett explains on how a dozen or so investments over his 58-year career have generated the vast majority of his success. Essentially, a dozen investments or stocks have made him the greatest investor of all time. We will also be playing a clip from a recent interview I gave on the Planet Microcap podcast that details a part of Keystone's research process inspired by Mr. Buffett as well. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, Brennan tackles a question on Cabro Linen, symbol KBL on the TSX, the largest owner and operator of laundry and linen processing facilities in Canada and a market leader for laundry and textile rental services in Scotland and the northeast of England. Brennan updates listeners on a business which I reviewed a couple of months back, again, riding my coattails. After their recent quarterly numbers, a new acquisition, and whether management's outlook for 2023 matches analyst expectations. Uh, finally, Brett answers a listener question on Open Text Corporation, OTEX, on the TSX, which engages in the design, develop, marketing, and selling of information management software and solutions. The stock has had a strong start to 2023. Brett lets you know if it is driven by the underlying fundamentals improving. So let's get to it. Mr. Dunn, we welcome you back. And as always, the killer Thank bees, you. Brennan and Brett. How are you guys doing? How was your trip, Aaron? We want to know. It was good. Yeah. Inquiring no, minds. All right. Just got back late last night. 19 hours of traveling with the family. Oh, um, always wow. fun. Yeah. Have to say it. Uh, it, it wasn't as bad as it sounds, though. It, uh, it, oh, it went by pretty good. That's quick, good. Got, uh, got back late last night and uh, happy to be on the podcast today because, you know, I've been hearing a lot of bad things over the last couple of weeks about how the quality of the content has really gone downhill. Um, yep. So definitely want to thank God that was rating season over the last two weeks. Cause we just absolutely hit it out of the park <laughs> once again, coming back to a chorus of booze, Mr. Aaron Dunn. No, we're kidding. Yeah. No, no we're it's ha- We're happy to have you back and we're interested in your segment. Yeah, I, I mean, did you guys have any questions about his trip? Aaron, do you want to tell us where you were? Did you actually do well, some salsa Chile. dancing? I was in Chile in yes. South America. So um, kind of eating America, salsa or doing yeah. salsa dancing. One of the two. You know, I have not seen any salsa dancing in, in Chile. My understanding is that salsa primarily <laughs> we... originated in Cuba, although I'm not 100% sure of that. And I did go to Peru many years ago and and... I believe that salsa dancing was more popular there. I've not, I mean, maybe it is popular in Chile. 
I'm uh, I'm I'm not. Uh, it's not something that that I've heard. Just not at the nightclubs you were hanging out with. Well, when you were there. yeah, the uh, nightclubs I'm hanging out, out, which is you know <laughs> yeah. the nightclubs that allow young children, which don't exist. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, which are you know, very popular. Though, because the first place we stayed was on the coast, um, in this uh, in this town called um, Algarobo, and this so nice. this is this is a this is a coastal town and it has a huge resort there and it has a pool. Which is the it's it was the largest pool in the world at one point. Now I believe that um, there's one or two pools around the world that were built since then by the same guy, which are larger. Um, but it's the largest one in South America, and this thing is absolutely massive, and it has like more than half a dozen Olympic-sized swimming pools just inside of it that people could go in. But because, of course, in South America right now, it's their I believe it's their they just finished summer vacation for the kids so when we got there the kids had just gone back to school like the week before or two weeks before so there's this huge resort and almost nobody was there we basically almost had the place to ourselves so that was just kind of our you know we went there just for a couple of days to you know acclimatize when we got down there but it was nice i mean we're we're sitting there perfect place for you right what's that Perfect place for you. Nobody was there, right? No people. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. So, so I mean, awesome. that, that was interesting. But no, we, we went, we, we, you know, toured around a little bit. My wife has family down there. So we saw some family and it was, it was all good. Any Bellinis? It's good to hear. Sorry? Any Bellinis? Bellinis. No. Yeah. Lots of Pisco <laughs> Sours. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. But no, awesome. I, I don't think I saw any Bellinis on the menu, but lots of Pisco Sours. If you did, they would have been consumed, but they were not there, right? Yes. Right. You you drained the town of Bellini somehow. That's <laughs> uh it's just kind of a tradition when we're on the road doing some of our seminars that Aaron Aaron starts the the meal with a Bellini typically. Mm, so. Always, always. Yeah. Everybody Aaron really loves us telling everybody yeah. that, right? I'm now. sure he does. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. To in, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you, let's get to investing. You, you, you gleaned something, some great information from yeah. uh, the Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's 2022 annual shareholder letter. Uh, he explains how a dozen or so investments over about 58 years have really generated the vast majority of his success. And I, I think it's an excellent point. We try to hammer on this point in our seminars all the time. It's great to see somebody um, like Warren Buffett pointing that out because I don't think it is pointed out enough on how like you need the success in your portfolio in those individual companies to drive your overall returns. And he's coming out and saying this is the way to generate a portfolio that beats the market long term and you have to have those winners. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So why don't we go through it? Because I thought it was a really interesting quote and um, obviously, you know, Warren Buffett is, is a man who needs no introduction. He's, he's thought by many to be, um, one of, or potentially the greatest investor of all time. And there's some people that will dispute that and they'll say, oh, you know, he's not really that great. And they'll make some, some different points. But first of all, why do many consider him to be the greatest? Well, you know, it really comes down to investment returns. So if you look at the return of Berkshire Hathaway from 1964 to 2022, 3.7 million percent. I mean, that's insane compared to the S and P 500 dividends included of um, just under 25,000 um, percent. So over this period of time, Warren averaged a return of just under 20 percent, 19.8 percent, compounded annually 
compared to the S&P 500, which averaged 9.9%. Now, when people look at that return, 20%, if you know anything about investing in the stock market, you know, 20% is a pretty good return compared to some of the numbers that the S&P has been posting um, over the past couple of years, last year, notwithstanding, uh, you know, 20% to some people, it's like, uh, it, it's, it's, it doesn't really look that, that impressive, but this is consistent over a period of 58 years. So this is that 3.7 million percent return. That is from 1964 to 1922. So um, 58 years is what we're looking at, right? Well, you know, we're all about a long-term time horizon. Few have the stomach for that type of a time horizon. Um, but, you know, we also don't need to build up a $100 billion wealth like Warren Buffett as well. So anyways, on to the quote, um, just to give some background, every year, one of the things that Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett does is they publish the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letter. And if you go to the website, BerkshireHathaway.com, you can get these letters going back all the way to 1977, potentially even before that. And what this is, is for many, this is like a gospel in the investment industry. Um, so like many shareholder letters, it overviews Berkshire's performance and operations over the previous year or years. Um, but what it also does is it provides Warren Buffett's specific commentary on like investment ideas that he's had, um, things that he's done that have worked well, why he's done them, um, things that haven't worked out and just lessons learned of what's going on in, in the market. So it's read by countless thousands of investors and many consider it to be one of the best instructional documents out there on just intelligent investing principles. And many look at it almost like a textbook. Um, there are some who say that if you are in the investment industry, you should go back, you should read every one of his annual reports. So this is something that we we take a look at his annual report. It's it's not very long. They're fairly easy to read. One thing that Buffett really likes to do is speak in um, simple language. You know, he doesn't like to make things very complicated. But there was one um, there was one point that he made in this particular letter that I thought was really important to talk about. Um, and it kind of surprised me just the way that he he talked about his success. I mean, everybody wants to know you know, what is it that has driven Warren Buffett's success? What does he look at when he's analyzing a company or how does he make investment decisions? So um, in the letter he talked, he said, and this is specific, he said, in the 58 years of his managing Berkshire, that most of his capital allocation decisions, so his investment decisions have really been so-so. So the, so the majority of them have really not been that great. Um, in a lot of cases, he's made some very bad decisions, but he said that the results that he has generated, these incredibly strong results over time, were really the product of about a dozen or so truly good decisions. So if you look at that, a dozen or so truly good decisions over a period of 58 years, um, that averages to about one good investment decision every five years or one great investment decision every five years. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting because people, when they think of Warren Buffett, they think, well, if you know, if Warren Buffett is buying this company, it must be good, right? Um, but then the most, the majority of the investments he makes, according to him, are not necessarily that great. There's there's a small number of very strong winners. And then he went on to actually talk about a couple of those winners. Uh, he called this section the secret sauce. And the first one that he talked about was Coca-Cola. So he mentioned that 
he concluded building his position in Coca-Cola in 1994. It was over a seven-year period that he built that position up. And the total cost was about $1.3 billion, which at the time was an extremely meaningful sum for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, now, Coca-Cola has been one of the, his top performers, and this is one of the dozen or so companies that have driven the returns. Now, how has Coca-Cola driven those re returns? Well, one thing that he specified here was the cash dividend. So he mentioned that the cash dividend that he received, that Berkshire received from Coca-Cola in 1994 when they completed uh, their purchases was about $75 million. In 2022, that cash dividend has increased to $704 million, right? So $75 million to $704 million. Now, of course, what is this over? This is over a, a 28 year period. Um, again, you know, we're, we're talking long-term time horizons, but um, that's pretty considerable growth in, in dividends. So uh, growth occurred every year in the dividend and um, all they were required to do once they bought the company was just cash those checks. And that's what he liked about the company. That is one of the things that has driven that extremely strong return. Um, another of the major success stories that he talked about was American Express. Um, so he had mentioned that in 1995 is when he completed his, his purchase of his position, multi-year purchase. Um, it also cost $1.3 billion. That was the investment. And then annual dividends received have since grown from $41 million to $302 million. So again, they're increasing their dividends on an ongoing basis. Um, now, if you actually look over this time horizon of you know, what the growth in dividends are, it's on an annual basis, it's not necessarily um, that spectacular, but it's the compounded growth over time that have really, um, that have really produced this, this performance. Um, he mentioned that um, at year end in 2022, his position in Coke was valued at $25 billion and, and, and Amex was valued at $22 billion, again, up from $1.3 billion. So he's cashing those dividend checks um, and then success in the business, including, including the growing dividend, has increased the value of the investment as well. So right now he's saying that um, each of these holdings now accounts for roughly 5% of Berkshire's net worth. Um, compared to a much lower percentage when he initially invested in them. So really what the point that he's trying to make here is that there's, there's two things going on. Well, there's a couple things going on. One, a point that we've made in the past is that investing in companies that provide dividends and then also grow those dividends over time, growing the dividend because they're growing their earnings per share is a key ingredient to investing success. So we've shown a lot of data in the past about how dividend growth stocks have vastly outperformed um, non-dividend paying companies um, and the market average um, on a total return basis. So with your dividends and your share price appreciation, growing dividends generally tend to, when it's sustainable growth, they generally tend to over time result in share price appreciation. Um, but another point that he's making here is that when you invest in these big winners and you hold them over long periods of time, they, they completely overwhelm um, your poor investment decisions. So just as an example, um, he, he had, he's doing the comparison where say he had made an investment 
um, in you know 1994, 1995, around the time that he finished his other investments of again 1.3 billion, same amount that he invested in Coke, same in Amex, and that investment went nowhere. Say it, it was a poor investment, it generated you know a, a fairly um, minimal return and was still worth 1.3 billion dollars today. Then that investment would be worth about 0.3 percent of Berkshire's net worth compared to um, Coke and Amex, which are both worth now about 5% of Berkshire's net worth. So what he says here, the direct quote is, quote, is that the weeds wither away in significance as the flowers bloom. The flowers being those great investments that you make. The weeds being the, the mediocre investments that you make. And then finally, he makes the point, and this is something that he, the point that he makes a lot is that investing is really a lot of, about time. It's about not trading the markets. It's about holding stocks that are compounding growth over a long period of time. And he says, of course, you know, it helps when you live well into your 90s. Um, and he's been doing this for 58 years. So, you know, he said in the past, probably the biggest driver of his success is that he's been doing this for so long. Um, but I would say as well, you know, not making the poor decision of trying to time the markets and sell out and second guessing himself. Rather, he has been, you know, focusing on solid businesses that he would hold over a long-term time horizon. And if you look at Warren Buffett's historical performance, it's not all been great. I mean, there have been years where the performance has been lower than the market, uh, years where it has been um, very poor. I think it was one point in the 70s when he had a negative 48% return in Berkshire. Um, you know, last year, the return was 4%. It was a very weak market, still beating out the S&P, which was down 19%. In the years before that, when the S&P was super hot, he was generally underperforming the S&P, but it's really about time, um, not trying to time the markets, but just time in the markets, and then just sticking with good solid companies that are compounding their growth and paying dividends. So one thing that I wanted to do here is I'm really interested in seeing what Warren Buffett sees when he makes decisions. And as much literature as there is about Warren Buffett and his investment strategy from a high level, I find that there is a lack of information about the types of valuations that he likes to pay at the time that he's buying these companies. Warren Buffett is, is, is often seen as a value investor. Um, and maybe that's because his mentor, Benjamin Graham, is known as the godfather of value investing. But I don't really see Warren Buffett as a value investor. I see him more as a growth at a reasonable price investor. He has said in the past, you know, he would much rather buy a great company at a fair price than a bad company at a great price. Meaning just because a company is cheap does not mean um, it, it's, it's a good stock. So what I did is um, he, he highlighted Coca-Cola out of the 12 companies. He listed Coca-Cola first. So I wanted to go back and see what Warren Buffett was seeing when he made these purchases, which were from 1987 to 1994. So I went to the um, internet archives and I pulled up financial data um, on Coca-Cola to essentially see um, the type of financial performance, the type of numbers that Buffett would have been looking at. Um, and I find it very interesting. I mean, there's some volatility in, in revenue growth, in earnings growth, but generally speaking, um, Coca-Cola produced strong, um, you know, high single to um, mid double digit growth, mid teen double digit growth in revenue over this period of time and good growth in earnings in earnings per share. Um, also consistently growing their dividend um, on an annual basis as well. 
Um, but the dividend, but the P ratio is something that really interested me. So rather than just look at like a lot of data in a table, um, what I did is I averaged this data over the, the period of time here, the seven years. Um, and over this period of time, the average revenue growth of the company was 11.2%. The average earnings per share growth was 17%. The average dividend growth was 14.8%. And the average price to earnings multiple was about 24 times. Um, so what I find really interesting is just the multiple that he that he pays for, for, for stocks. Um, what does Warren Buffett see as reasonable value? Now, when you look at Coca-Cola back then, as a, from a qualitative perspective, what you would see is you would see a company that is, is consistently growing its revenue, consistently growing its earnings per share, consistently growing its dividend, um, a company that is a global brand, uh, an absolute behemoth and leader in its market, and that was continuing to grow its market share over this period of time. Um, but it was never what I would consider to be incredibly cheap. So the lowest multiple we see here based on year-end um, share price was 16 times. And that would have been around the time that Warren Buffett was originally taking his position in 87, 88. Um, and then the mul multiple got as high as is 33 times um, by 1991, um, but on average 24 times. Now we don't know exactly the multiple that Warren Buffett was, was paying um, just because the multiple peaked out at about 33 times more or less doesn't mean he was necessarily buying shares. There could have been volatility through the year where he was, where he was purchasing more. Um, but, you know, generally you're looking at a company here that's trading over 20 times earnings. So this isn't, you know, what most would consider to be a classical value investment. You know, you're not looking at, you know, a distressed company trading at, you know, 12 or 10 or eight or five times earnings per share. What you're looking at is a very financially healthy company, strong market position, strong operations, strong brand and growth that is trading at a valuation which is, you know, not excessively above the market average. You know, he's likely was for most of his purchase paying around 20 times or slightly over 20 times. So, so I found that to be very interesting. And it's, um, it's the way that we look at the market as well. Um, just because a company is trading at a cheap multiple does not mean that it's a cheap stock to buy as an investment. Most of the time, that cheap multiple is justified by uh, poor financials and poor fundamentals and a higher level of risk. Um, and it's really about good intelligent investing is really about finding great companies, but then not overpaying for them. So a lot of times you can find a great business that has all the fundamentals that Coca-Cola did. Maybe it's trading at 40, 50 times earnings, 60 times earnings, um, or much higher, which could easily be the case in the software space. Um, that's the case where, you know, you have also have to consider no asset, regardless of how quality that asset is, is worth an infinite price. So it's about finding great companies, not overpaying for them. Um, obviously, you know, everything else equal, you want that valuation to be as low as possible, but, um, you know, everything else is never equal. And usually you will have to pay up a little more to get a great company. Anyways, that sums that up. And, and I think that, you know, this blueprint can really be applied to many businesses today. I mean, when I look at these numbers, they're impressive, but they're, they're certainly not unheard of um, in, in today's markets. Companies growing, you know, consistently at a good pace. Companies paying great dividends. I mean, one stock that came to mind in our income research 
was is Brookfield Infrastructure, which we originally recommended in 2011 um, at a at an effective price of around fourteen dollars. Um, and then since then, that company has paid out you know upwards of of twenty three dollars US just in income distributions, and the stock and the stock has um, increased by multiples. So you know this is just you know that's again this is a company that we originally recommended about twelve years ago. We've um, put the buy recommendation out again about 26 times, um, but just compounded over time. That's essentially what happens when you buy a company that's paying a nice dividend, growing the business, reinvesting capital back into the business, and then continuing to grow the dividend. Um, and then Ryan, I mean, you you talk about, you have an entire segment in your in, in, in our DIY seminars about how two to three great stocks can completely change uh, an investor's life. Yeah, and and sometimes it sounds like hyperbole, right? And I say that all the time. But you know, Warren Buffett, again, we would largely consider the greatest investor of all time, is basically talking about that right here. He, and and hmm. the the thing is, you don't hear about that from most advisors that this is what is driving your returns. And you know, there's we talk about why. Some portfolios are structured. Many portfolios are structured, not even to take advantage of these. And yeah, I mean, I think you talked about just to step back a sec, you talked about just looking for growth at a reasonable price, right? You're looking for, you know, it doesn't have to be the cheapest stock out there. It doesn't have to, it's obviously not going to be the most expensive, but growth going forward. And you looked at, even when he was looking at that uh, in terms of the EPS growth, 17% over that period, that's a high rate of EPS growth mm -hmm. consistently over that period. And, you know, that's, he he's buying the growth and he's buying it at a reasonable price if it's continuing to grow at that level. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we would be looking for on a daily basis. And I mean, I, I, I have some thoughts on this from the segment Aaron talked about. I, we do this segment uh, in many of our webinars where we talk about two to three stocks it can be game changing uh, for the portfolios of uh, our, our clients. And um, it's a point, again, like I said, most advisors won't, tell you about in fact because of the way they construct your portfolio and it's structured you basically don't have a chance of benefiting from these type of game-changing investments in your portfolio and i have a a slide that we can put up right now it's it's a four great keystone stocks essentially it's boyd we recommended at two dollars and thirty cents it's around the 215 range that's nine thousand five hundred percent expel a dollar 42 64 67 today 4,000 plus percent. Hammond Power, $1.15. It's in the $36 range today, over 3,000%. Water Furnace, $1.15, bought out at $30.60. So those are the type of stocks kind of that Warren Buffett is talking about there um, where you have that tremendous growth over a long period of time in your portfolio and it compounds. Um, Again, we've had more than these four in our coverage over time that have had thousands of percent gains, ceramic protection, Janus systems, for example. Um, I, and Aaron was looking for what is Warren Buffett looking at? So what is the common theme with these stocks? Well, the stocks, the four I listed there, for example, um, what is the common theme when we found them? Well, first of all, fundamentally, all were growing and trading at what we would call reasonable valuations with good balance sheets and they had excellent growth paths potentially ahead of them and have executed on that. I, I would say what's curious about these companies is um, on the initial recommendation, not a single Canadian brokerage, uh, even boutique brokerage firms 
or analyst firms had any coverage on Expel, Hammond Power, or Water Furnace. Boyd had basically one analyst at the time covering the stock, and it was soon discontinued out of, out of coverage. Um, why? Well, one could say these are smaller companies, so they're just not covered as much in the markets in Canada or the U.S., but to me, that's not really the story here. There are hundreds, if not thousands, in a year basis with all the banks out there and boutique brokerages, small cap companies, smaller companies that get covered. Uh, the real story here is uh, they had strong balance sheets. They did not need capital from Bay Street for the most part. Uh, Boyd had a, has access convertible debt at some points, but really basically on its own terms. So if you don't need capital from Wall Street or Bay Street, you don't make the money, so you're not covered. So these these are four of the, the companies that I listed there of the best performing stocks over the past couple of decades in on the entire TSX, TSX Venture. And they would have never made it into most Canadian portfolios because they don't get coverage. They're not recommended. The big banks are not making money off of them. Um, they would have made a game-changing difference in your portfolio, but you know it looks to me like... The big banks, that's not their concern. Now, identifying these game-changing companies is probably the most difficult part, but it is not the end of your journey. Investors need to hold a couple of these stocks, like we say, in your entire lifetime in your portfolio to make a true difference in your wealth. But your portfolio must be structured in a way to be able to take advantage of these gains. If you build your portfolio with the traditional model, uh, you have five to 10 mutual funds, each owns 100 plus stocks. Uh, maybe if your advisor is adventurous, you own 20, 25 stocks. I just saw a portfolio last week that was sent off to us from a new client. He had 25 stocks. He had a bond portfolio. He also had, you know, 10 plus ETFs in there. Now, even if one of these stocks, say the four that I listed there, made it into your portfolio through some dumb luck over the past 15, 20 years, the likelihood uh, I, sorry, it's likely one of like 50 or, or 500 stocks through the ETFs that you own, and it'll compose far less than 1% of your overall portfolio. They can increase thousands of percent, which is good, but it's not going to generate the game-changing wealth in your portfolio that many of our clients or many investors generally are looking for. So your portfolio has, actually has to be well-structured to take advantage of these type of companies. You got to identify them, which is the hardest part, but then they can't be one of 500 stocks you effectively hold. Uh, for us, we call the sweet spot owning 15 to 25 high quality growth at a reasonable price stocks. Uh, that is so one of these game changing stocks that you find in your lifetime. If a couple of them you can have in your entire investing lifetime, that is so they can make a significant difference in your portfolio. So that's the structure. I, I love what Warren is saying there. I love how he's bringing that to the attention of more people in the markets, more investors, because we've been hammering on this point for years. And, uh, you know, it's something that we can provide. And it's something that you should really look at every Canadian investor in your portfolio. Make the decision. Do you want to make uh, returns that can beat the market? Well, structure your portfolio and try to find those companies. If you just want to perform at the market rate, there are different ways to do it. Far less risk, way simpler. But if you're trying to beat the market, most investors who are listening to this podcast or who are in the market are trying to do that. You got to structure your portfolio effectively. But first and foremost, look for those great 
growth at a reasonable price investments and allow them to execute over you know, years and years and decades as Warren Buffett has. Um, and not every investment will be extremely successful, but if you can pull two or three in your lifetime that do what those four companies I showed on that uh, slide or, you know, like a Coca-Cola or an Amex for, for um, Warren Buffett can do, it can truly change your wealth position in your portfolio. Yeah. Um, one thing that I'd like to add too is, you know, Peter Lynch makes the, uh, you know, the quote essentially saying that most big bank analysts would rather recommend a large blue chip stock that hundreds or thousands of analysts are following and get a measly return than essentially put their neck out there with a potential unknown stock that no one else uh, is is looking at. Um, just because if yeah, that that's scary, because it's if so that stock do that, does right? yeah. you know underperform, then you know their managing or their manager, uh, you know, will you know not be too happy with them. But again, yeah. it's, also you got to put in a ton account. of work to find that company exactly. too. So they, some don't want to do the work, some don't want to have their neck stuck out. It, you yeah. know, it's a combination. It's easier that, to do if it. You're, if you're wrong, when yeah. everybody else is wrong, it's easy to just be like, oh, we were all wrong. Exactly, not, not a big deal, yeah. right? Um, but you're not. But if, if you're, you're wrong, wrong, if you go against yeah. the grain, if you go against the crowd, then and you're wrong. You yeah. you're you're you lose your job, right? Yeah. And so that's that's and that's that groupthink mentality is definitely strong on base exactly. Wall Street. Awesome. Yeah, it's huge. Good segment, Aaron. That was awesome. Glad to have you back. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah, that was awesome. But I don't know if we're glad to have him back. Ah, yeah. Yeah, the segment was okay. <laughs> that was good. It was good. All right. Uh, we're moving on. Uh, if you got any comments on that segment too, you can tell Aaron if you hated it or loved it. Uh, you know, keep those comments coming in uh, on YouTube there, or if you want to post them on our, uh, if you're listening to it in podcast form as well on iTunes. All right, Bre uh, we're going to play a clip. Uh, I did an interview over the past week on the Planet Micro podcast with uh, Bobby Kraft. Um, we're going to play essentially a segment of that full interview on uh, Keystone's investment process. It, I talk about Warren Buffett and that, how he inspired some of the you know, boots on the ground grunt work we do when we look into companies. So we're going to play that right now and then uh, not comment at all on it after and get, get move on with the podcast. But we're going to play that right now. So, you know, Ryan, to start off for you, you know, what is, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to use what we're calling for Maj's, you know, the top tier mm -hmm. but for yours, you know, what, what is some of the criteria that you're looking for, for these companies that you have under coverage? Yeah, just, I'll just tell um, anybody who's watching uh, what we like, we're a fully independent research firm, been around for 24 years. Uh, clients are individual investors, institutional investors. They pay us to help them build simple 15 to 25 stock portfolios. We look for stocks on a GARP basis. So that's our criteria, growth at a reasonable price. Uh, we're sector agnostic. And, and let me step back and say, when we're independent, companies cannot pay for coverage in, in our research. Uh, our clients are individual and institutional investors that pay us. So we look for growth at a reasonable price. We're sector agnostic. Uh, we really believe our edge essentially is that we leave no stone unturned in our research. Uh, we put actual eyes on the financial statements of basically every stock in Canada that's over 3,500 approximately and 3,400 in the U.S. on an annual basis. So I'll start with our process. It's really simple, but it's a lot of grunt work. And I think that sets us apart. Um, 
about 25 years ago, I read an interview on uh, with Warren Buffett on his process. He was asked a simple question because I was starting out at that time and I thought it really spoke to me. He was asked if he was starting out as an analyst today, uh, what is the best piece of advice he would give anybody starting out? Essentially, he said, start by going through every stock in the country. Well, I, I remember hearing and you know seeing the interview laugh, the interviewer laugh and say, well, that, that would be over 10,000 stocks. That's ridiculous. And Warren just deadpanned him back and said, yeah, I would start at the A's and that's what I did. And, and so, so that stuck with me. And we started doing this 20 plus years ago where we would sit down and you guys have Edgar in the US, you know, and we have CEDAR, S-E-D-A-R in the U in Canada, where every company files all their documents. So um, we put this into process. Uh, it takes us about two and a half months. So one of on our analyst team starts at the A's on CDR, one starts at, the, at Z. We meet in the middle and we, we just go through every public company's documents. So you look, we start with the financial statements, right? You look at the income statement, latest quarterly statement on every stock. Um, fortunately, unfortunately, really in Canada, fortunately, it helps us move through a little faster. There's a lot of resource companies and a lot of oil and gas that are exploration stage. So we don't even have revenues. So you just swipe right or left or whatever it is on the dating app. I, I'm not allowed to know that now. So let's just, whatever way you get rid of, uh, we get rid of companies that way. We move on to the next company. If it actually has revenue, right? We, we go from there and say, is there growth? Uh, is there, and then go down to, is there income cash flow on a per share basis? We like to look at balance sheets too. So a strong balance sheet or a, you know, net cash position is something I love in a, uh, small cap, particularly where the volatility is higher. If you can't always have that, you got to be able to make sure they can service the debt, particularly in this environment. Now, then we rank these companies against each other. We have we pull every week the companies that uh, our analysts have pulled out uh, after reading outlooks and all those things. You know, I don't want to get into the ex exact thing formula that we have, but we we have an investment meeting every week and we go over who we're going to interview right from that list. So after we get through the 3000 companies, we're going to go through and interview management teams. You want to talk to key, you know, we always want to talk to the CEO. We want to talk to, you know, if there's a, a shareholder that has a, a significant position that's on the board, you might want to talk to them and, and then just, and go through whether or not they fit that criteria of growth or reasonable price, figure out if uh, they have a growth path ahead of them looking three to five years, because we're not buying the stock for what they do over the next six months. It's always three to five years plus. We'd love to hold them for as long as possible, but uh, you want to have a growth path that's reasonable ahead of them and have a reasonable price. We also need to understand the business. Uh, since we go, we can understand the financial statements, but if we can't understand, um, I mean, there's some statements that are ridiculous for us. And if, if there's any hesitation there, we can move on to the next company because we're we look at so many companies that you want to find the best out of that. But if you can't understand anything, we just move on. So at, we do the sim, a similar thing in the U.S. We're actually doing that right now. We don't start at A and Z or whatever way you want to flip it. A and Z on uh, Edgar. We, we're doing right now something. Every stock under 100 uh, billion or 1 billion, sorry, not 100 billion or under 1 billion and just going through that same process. So that would be. We do look on the OTC, but only the OTCQX. Then every stock under a billion on the New York, every stock under a billion on the NASDAQ, essentially. And just that'll take us, you know, about a month and a half, two months to go through. We have four analysts on it right now. 
and every time we, um, you know, every time we have a company come out in our, our weekly meeting, well, if we like the business, want to go further, then we're going to go and uh, interview management. That, I mean, incidentally, I noticed one of the companies that's going to your uh, conference upcoming, Credit Risk, just um, they just popped up on our screens uh, from looking at the actual financial statements, looking at our growth at a reasonable price uh, criteria. And so, so we interviewed management last week and then we said, oh, we're going to see you in person, you know, in, in about a month, a month and a half's time and uh, at the Planet Micro. So it's nice to see that some companies that were pulling out just through our independent research are actually at your event too as well. So we'll sit down. We had a good conversation with them. It was good. I, you, I, you, you couldn't hear what I said, but whew, that's good. You know? <laughs> no, it was, they, they, yeah, they were terrible. No, yeah, right. I'm just kidding. Uh, by no, the way, no, for them to even be an interview for us means we've liked quite a bit of the story, right? So, yeah. and we've liked quite a bit of the numbers behind them. And then we want like, we got to know, like, it's a, it's a father son team there. Right. And yeah. we got to know, you know, basically the, the father quite well. He's a, he's a great character, great interview with him. Oh, uh, and, and, and the son seems to be a good executor. Right. So it, yep. it was, it was, it was quite, it was quite instructive and formative about an hour and 15 minutes. So we sat down with them, you know, Zoom. But now, you know, the great thing is when you go to an event like yours, we get to sit down with them in person and, and you know, we can we can do the 30 minute speed dating. And then if we really like you, we can go to dinner with them and really start to explore. So we've done that so many times before in the past. Uh, I, I remember sitting down uh, five, six years ago with uh, Ryan Pape from Expel. Yeah. And 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 like it just I mean, that company has been a game changer for our clients, right? Like it was trading. It was then listed just on the TSX venture, right? And in US dollars, about a dollar forty. We got to buy in, and our clients got to buy in between a dollar fifty and a dollar twenty. And um, you know, today it's sixty-four dollars. Like that, we always talk when we do seminars with our clients and talk just how how important the winners are in your portfolio because you're going to have losers. And if you can ride out those winners, like we actually bought more of Expel at 250 because their quarter, I remember in March of like, it's probably 2018 was so good that on a trailing basis, their EPS, their PE on their actual EPS, like on an adjusted basis was, um, better at 250 than 140 because of the quarter that came up. And then we bought more at $5 and, you know, we've bought as the stock has gone up and, and, you know, just, it's just, well, the business is well executed. I don't know. You probably know Expel quite well, oh, yeah, but very it's, well. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, those are, and see, we've gotten, we watched the company for four years before we bought. Right. So, I mean, very patient on stories like that, got to know the business, had talked to management a number of times. Um, there was, uh, you know, in the fall of 2017, uh, the numbers kind of hid the actual earnings. Like, so when you're actually, that's one of the reasons why we actually want to look at the MDNAs, the management discussion documents and look at the numbers, not just use a screener, right? Cause it use a screener. It's not going to see that, you know, this company consolidated two distribution facilities and, uh, you know, there's one-time costs in that quarter there, you know, your screener is just usually getting uh, a non-adjusted earnings figure. So it may have looked like that company was trading at 17 times earnings when really, uh, based on, you know, taking out those one-time items, it was trading at about 10 or 12 times, plus the growth was 30 plus percent. And we thought it would accelerate. So that's where, you know, 
your boots on the ground, actually looking at the financial statements, reading, looking at the outlook, seeing if these numbers are, you know, on our, the accounting basis differs from how, how we'd look at it on an investment basis, right? So, I mean, that that's the value of spending two months looking at financial statements and, you know, you know your family doesn't see you, but you know, that that's not the best part of it. But, but you know, the, you, you can find and expel, you can find like these companies that really are, are orphaned by the market and then, uh, you know, start, they start to finally get their due. In Canada, on expel too, literally never had, like we have uh, five big banks essentially, never had coverage from the banks at all, despite the fact that it went on to be basically, it graduated to the NASDAQ and went on to be over that five-year period, the best performing stock from that exchange, right? And it just had cash in the bank, so didn't need financings, thus doesn't get coverage from, you know, the boutique brokerages or the, the, um, the big banks because there's no money in it for them. Despite the fact it should have been in many portfolios, it never gets in because nobody's covering it because it doesn't, you know, you're not wetting the whistle of a, a company like that. Anyways, that, that's kind of our process doing that in the U.S. right now. Um, and then, you know, I mean, there's a number of other things we look at. You want to judge qualitatively management teams, too. So we, you know, we have a database when we interview management, if they have guidance, then we look at the next quarter. Did they hit guidance, exceed, or fall below? Now, if they hit or exceed, you're going to give them a check mark in our system, right? And if they do that in the next quarter, they're going to get a check mark. If they continue to do that over time, we have a higher degree of confidence. So we can apply a higher multiple to the stock, right? We're very patient with stuff like that. But if, if they miss or continually miss, like the opposite is true, we're just not going to be able to put a lot of stock in or credence in anything they say in those interviews. One thing, I, again, I'm going to pump your tires for having an event like this. We have we found during the pandemic when we do a Zoom call or, a, you know, those type of calls, um, it's not as personal. Management is not as accountable to their um, their guidance. Then if you know they're going to be on the small cap circuit, we're going to see them at your event. We're going to see them at an upcoming event. And you're going to be able to shake their hand and look at them and squeeze it harder if they uh, – they miss their target and then shake it less. <laughs> you know, you're going to, you're going to keep them accountable, right? So it's, it's good. And, and you can do those things in person. And I, I do find that those are very valuable, right? And that's why, 100%. that's why we do those events and reach out and, and be involved because uh, I like to actually talk to management in the end, it is their intellectual capital behind the, the business that you're investing in. And uh, you know, for us to put our money, for us to put, you know, our substantial client base's money behind it, um, it's, it's really good to be able to sit down with a management team and, and, you know, find out if you're comfortable with that person. We've had some conferences. I'm just keep going here. You don't even have to talk. I was going to say, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dude, 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 we've had, we, we've had, you're, you do web, listen, Ryan, you do webinars. So like, I know oh, you're, yeah, you're, you're, we good. just did I, a five hour one. Right. So like, <laughs> and, and, and somehow I was still talking at the end. Right. But anyway, so but like we've done events like yours, other events all across Canada and into the US. And you'll see a number on our company on paper that everything looks, you know, it looks quite good. And then you'll meet the founder, the CEO, and and you and you will say, I'm not putting my money there. And and I'm not gonna totally name companies that are doing that right now, but I mean there are a few companies that we've had like shit, this looks like great numbers, everything looks like great stuff on paper. And then I'm like, I'm not putting my money, our clients' money with that management team. And 
that's not something that I can just, you know, I can't put that into a spreadsheet to quantify, but you know, you're going to get a feel for the, and it's just what they say in the interview too, and what they're looking at, what their vision is. But yeah, there's some people you would trust with your money, just like uh, you should trust this advisor over that advisor. It's the management team you're putting your money with uh, in the business. And uh, particularly in the small cap area, like uh, so, sometimes, you know, you get to a, uh, like a, a company that's of significant size and they have a massive team management team. Well, they're not as important that one individual, but in, in the small cap arena, the, the, the man or woman holding the reins is, is, is often very influential in the business. And we have to be careful who that is because you, you, you know, in the past you get bitten. So you don't want to have that happen. A hundred percent. You just gave, that was, that was a, a you actually consolidated a lot of great information. I think you just, you should uh, delete that webinar and just take the first uh, 15 minutes of our interview and put that as uh, everything that you look for. Well, that was an excellent segment. I have to say so myself. Um, whoever was on screen there in the glasses, I don't really totally recognize him, but uh, a handsome man, handsome man, that guy is. And uh, some great, uh, great comments. You I probably don't recognize him because you don't have your glasses on right now. Mm, no, it's true. <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he, but he, that, that is a handsome man. That's all I can say. All right, we're moving on. Um, but I think we're going to Brennan's segment, or maybe not anymore we are. after that. We're not going to no, his segment. You're so you're going to talk off. about K-Bro, right? That, K-Bro? that is correct, yes, yes. Yeah, we talked about this a couple months back. Uh, we had interviewed management uh, relatively recently after we talked to them about them on the podcast. Got another question on them after their Q4 results, I believe. They made an acquisition too as well and have their expectations set out for this year and where the stock and the earnings could go over the course of this year. Awesome. Thank you. So yes, like you said, I am riding your coattails yet again. Uh, as you did cover this stock about two months ago and following the release of its Q4 2022 results, the stock has declined about 11% and we got a question that came in. So we thought that we would revisit the story to see the business's progress. So Cabro Linen Inc., KBL on the TSX, currently trading at about $26.95 with a $290 million market cap and a dividend yield of about 4.4%. So Cabro Linen is the largest owner and operator of laundry and linen processing facilities in Canada and a market leader for laundry and textile rental services in Scotland and the Northeast of England. Uh, the company's operations in Canada include nine processing facilities and two distribution centers in 10 Canadian cities, including Quebec City, uh, Montreal, Toronto, Regina, Saskatoon, woo, Prince Albert, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, and Victoria. And the company's UK operations are across six locations. Now, for the most recent fiscal year, approximately 63% of its revenue came from its healthcare segment, while 37% came from the hospitality segment. And as you can see uh, from the table that I have up on the screen here, if you're watching uh, on YouTube, the business's hospitality segment took a massive hit in 2020 and 2021 because of the pandemic. But with the world reopening, the hospitality segment is finally getting back to its pre-pandemic highs. Now, just looking at some operational updates here, uh, earlier this month, Cabro announced the closing of a share purchase agreement to acquire all the assets of a private laundry and linen services company operating in Quebec City for a total consideration of $11.5 and a potential earnout of $1.9 
and the purchase price will be satisfied by drawing down on the company's revolving credit facility. Um, now, there was no indication on the acquisition's financial results, though, so we do not know the multiple that was paid. Now, looking at the recent financial results for Q4 of 2022, which just came out, uh, I believe, last week, uh, revenue was $70.7 million, an increase of about 13.6%, and the growth here was driven primarily by a further recovery in its hospitality segment. Uh, EBITDA was $8.7 million, a decrease of about 2% from the same period last year, and EPS, or earnings per share, was about 2.5 cents. Uh, which is a decline of 82 cents, or sorry, 82% from 14 cents generated in Q4 of 2021. And the decline in EBITDA and net income was primarily due to the temporary uh, labor inefficiencies from a tight labor market, higher natural gas rates, higher delivery costs related to increased diesel rates, and lower government assistance received. And margins were also impacted by the Alberta Health Services transition and the repricing of the corporation's existing business in Edmonton and Calgary with AHS, uh, which took effect on August 1st of 2021 in advance of the business uh, being fully transitioned. Now, looking at the balance sheet, uh, the company has about $2.6 million in cash and debt and leases of about $98.8 million, providing a net debt position of about $96.2 million and a trailing net debt to EBITDA multiple of about 2.6 times. Now, keep in mind, this is pre the March acquisition, uh, as these results are from December 31st of 2022. Now, looking at the valuation, the stock does trade with a trailing PE or price to earnings multiple of about 74 times and an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of about 10.6 times. Now, looking at the management's outlooks, I will uh, just provide a, a few comments here. Um, so the reopening of economies uh, will continue to support the strong recovery momentum in hospitality revenues. Uh, management also said into 2023 management uh, will continue to focus on optimizing plant efficiencies associated with the transition of new AHS business. And since March of 2022, KBL has faced significant volatility in energy costs due to current geopolitical issues. And in April 2022, to mitigate this instability, uh, the company locked in natural gas supply rates in the UK until December of 2024. And based off of these locked in rates on natural gas as a percent of revenue, uh, it's increased approximately 2.5% from historical levels for 2022. And as they move into 2023, they expect to mitigate these cost increases with price increases to customers. And we have seen these price increases just begin to start to come in at the end of Q4. Now, KBL also continues to face temporary labor inefficiencies uh, from competitive labor markets, which management has no idea when this will ease. And management is confident in their ability to return to 2019 margin levels, which is anticipated to occur, occur in the latter half of 2023. Now, looking at analyst estimates here, we did speak with management late last year, and at that time, we saw estimates from analysts, which seemed kind of out to lunch to us. And even you know when we did speak with Linda, the CEO of Cabro, she told us that she believed this, she believed uh, a recovery was going to take a little bit longer than the analysts had actually indicated in their reports. So you can see here uh, that the actual fiscal year results. Uh, were came in lower on EPS uh, than what the this one analyst firm as well as the other analyst firm uh, had projected. And you can also see here that 
of their fiscal 2023 guidance, they ended up revising quite a bit lower. Uh, the first analyst firm here from $1.98 uh, to $1.30 and the second from $1.56 to just $0.85. Cents. So we can see that big uh, decrease there. Now, to conclude, I like Cabro Linen, and it's not just because it's operating in Saskatchewan. Uh, the company pays a nice dividend yield. They're profitable. But right now, the business is just a little pricey for us, and we would like uh, for the company to have a further pullback in its share price before we would potentially recommend the stock to our clients and just get those margins up, essentially, uh, which we are monitoring at this time. So where you have guidance there, those are the analyst uh, forecasts, right? Correct. Correct. Um, yeah. So... Uh, and, that, and, you know, like I've got like March 2022, that's when they actually came out with this guidance. So March 2022, mm -hmm. and then in March of 2023, they revised it lower. So just recently here. Um, so yes, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah the estimates there. Yeah, yeah, the estimates, I mean, and they, they were, to be honest, out to lunch. On yeah, and even Linda yeah, said And you're looking a year out, yeah. uh, $1.98. We're not going to mention who these no. came from. But, uh, you know, some of the big banks and a, and a yep. boutique, this is a big bank and a boutique firm that came out and said, you know, a, a year out 2023, $1.98 and adjusted EPS, then just ratcheting that down to $1.30. But then the $1.56 down to 85 I mean, if, if you're off by that magnitude, magnitude and um, management is saying, you know, in an interview to us that those estimates that we're looking at look off, then yeah. either you should be talking to management a little more or you just don't know what you're doing yeah. or shouldn't be estimating that far out, to be honest. And it's it's actually, it's kind of shocking how many times we'll talk to a management team and either find out that's a brokerage firm that has an estimate on them, uh, hasn't spoken with them, the analyst hasn't spoken with them, or they just completely disagree with the numbers. Uh, and, you know, it. it Either the work is not being put in or they're just inflating the numbers to because the, you know, they know the company needs financing and that looks better, you know, to have a higher number. I'm not sure, but it doesn't seem to be in the interest of an individual investor to go off those estimates. If you've been going off those estimates uh, on Cabro over the past year, uh, you'd be losing money because they're not hitting on those estimates. And, you know, that's what, when we look at Cabro, they do need to uh, increase their margins. Um, you know, it just, they just haven't been hitting on those uh, revenues. I think in their last 10 years are up two times, which is great, but SGNA is up three point, you know, two times. And, you know, the profitability just isn't there right now. It may come back. Management is saying the margin level should come back, but, uh, we'll give it a couple more quarters to see that progress actually happening. And I think you'll have time to be able to buy in if we really do see uh, some value there, but you know, they need to actually hit on their targets before we would buy back into the stock again. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on to our final segment. Uh, Brett is taking a listener question on what company are you looking at today? Open oh, it's an open text. I knew that. I knew that. There we go. Did you sure? <laughs> I don't, we think you know, like Brett. You're scrambling sure. for a script. <laughs> all uh, right. Yeah. That's it good. was in my mind somewhere. I found it. That's all I know. You got it. Go to open text, uh, which we do know. <laughs> do you? One day. Do we? I don't know. All Aaron right, knows. Aaron knows. Aaron's the, that's why we need him here. He keeps you yeah. leveled. All right. Let's get into open text. 
Open text symbol OTEX on the TSX currently trades at $51, up roughly 25% year to date. And with a market cap of just under $14 billion, it pays a dividend yield of about 2.5%. Open text describes itself as a leader in a $92 billion in growing information management market, delivering a compelling cloud-based platform of software and solutions that uniquely positions open text to win customers and continue to take market share regardless of the economic environment. Open text's five cloud segments, content cloud, business network cloud, experience cloud, security and protection cloud, and developer cloud. First, looking at the income statement for OpenText's most recent quarter, fiscal Q2 2023, which ended calendar Q4 at, at the end of the year uh, 2022. So they're delayed or they're forward about six months. The company reports in US dollars. So all the numbers that I'll be saying are US dollars besides the market cap, which I previously said. Total revenue was up about 2.4% to $897 million, and on a constant currency basis, about 7.8%. Annual recurring revenue, or ARR, was up 3.6% to $725 million, and 8.7% on a constant currency basis. Adjusted EBITDA, uh, on the other hand, was down 0.8% to $340.9 million. Gap net income was up 192.7% to $258 million, but this was just largely due to some accounting numbers of unrealized derivative gains relating to their acquisition, which followed the quarter of microfocus, removing this single unrealized gain, which is effectively just the accounting number. Net income really fell 2% to $86.5 million. So before I get into the balance sheet, uh... We're going to take a quick detour into management expectations as the performance is going to be significantly altered as they finish their acquisition of Microfocus on January 31st of 2023. So for fiscal 2023, the company now expects 28 to 30% revenue growth with only 1% to 2% being from organic. So non-organic is from acquisitions or things like that. So if you acquire a product, if you acquire a company like they did in this case, that's inorganic growth, organic growth from the products you already own and operate. So the difference is just really due to the company's core operations being as a software acquirer. So that's why you're getting that big total growth, that low organic growth. And much of the companies which they've historically acquired as well as uh, micro-focused are already in the mature stage of growth. So they don't have much organic growth of their own when they're acquiring. So past their initial acquisition, you don't really see much growth past that. And they have their aspirational targets in fiscal 2026, which they already moved back from fiscal 2025 of organic growth to 2 to 4%. So it's not really increasing much. The company does, however, forecast that it's going to be able to increase its adjusted EBITDA margin, forecasting 32.5% to 33.5% for fiscal 23, and then up to 38 to 40% of their aspirational margin for 2026. So clearly the management really doesn't expect much organic growth going forward. It's not really a shift. It actually is a bit lower with their integration of microforcus as it has historically lower organic growth, but they really expect to be able to deliver value through margin expansion. So at the end of Q2 23, OpenTex had a cash and cash equivalents of $2.82 billion and total debt and leases of $5.45 billion, resulting in a net debt position of $2.63 billion. Using the trailing 12 months adjusted EBITDA, we get a net adjusted EBITDA ratio of about 2.1 times. This ratio is already quite high, given the, but it's kind of expected given the historic acquisitions they've done, I think, about a dozen of these over the past decade. So it's not, it's not really that surprising. However, that is going higher following their acquisition of Microfocus. So 
Debt is now expected to be about $9.3 billion, excluding cash, with a weighted average of interest rate of 6.3%, which is quite high. Just last year, they were closer to about 4% for their interest rate, and moving up to 6.3% is obviously quite a bit bigger. And along with this acquisition, quite a bit of their debt, which was about 9, 80% of it was about fixed before this, now it's about half fixed, half variable. So they're much more sensitive to interest rates, and given the interest rate environment, it can be quite risky to say the least to hold variable rate interest. So given the acquisition price was 5.8 billion, we can add that to net debt, giving a rough performer net debt position of 8.4 billion at the end of this quarter. So effectively today when we're recording this, this will be the end of their next quarter. This is a rough number just so if someone is looking at this a couple months down the line and the earnings have actually been released and the number is different, that's why. The company does expect to pay down debt starting at the end of Q4 2023, so about midway calendar year for this year, of about $175 million per quarter. So they are planning to pay off debt, but the debt is quite big to say the least right now. So moving on to valuations using the pro forma estimated numbers and forward fiscal 2024. So this is about midway through 2024. We get an EV to adjusted EBITDA of 8.5 times. It is better than their trailing EV adjusted EBITDA of 12.4 times, but it makes sense as it's going forward. So you'd always expect a lower number going forward, assuming they're growing, as well as the addition of micro forecasts. They paid 6.7 times, so that's lower. So that would further lower the forward multiple, as well as just the synergies, which they do expect to get out of the integration, will further lower the multiples. That being said, that is still quite an expensive multiple given the organic growth, even once the integration is completed. Overall, the company is just significantly leveraged going forward and having significant interest rate risk, and it still trades at quite a pricey multiple given its organic growth. No, I was comprehensive and, and, and really... I mean, two things here. So the main reason that performance just over time has not been over the last, say, several years anyways, has not been great for open text, at least relative to other tech stocks. Last year, notwithstanding, because obviously that was a poor year for the tech sector, extremely poor. Um, but it really comes down to the organic growth. So open tax has never really been able to produce a decent level of organic growth. It's generally been in that one or 2% range. Um, whereas... Other companies in the cloud space or in the software space, generally speaking, um, they're more organic growth engines, right? So uh, very little, like if you take Fortinet, just for example, different industry, of course, um, but Fortinet um, in the cybersecurity space, growing their revenues in the range of like 20, 30% or above, very little of that is acquisition. The vast majority of that is organic. Um, and that is a combination of one, growth in the market and then also increasing market share. Um, you could also look at Microsoft as well. Look at their uh, Azure cloud platform, which is you know still different in the cloud space, but it's it's more similarly aligned because they're both cloud businesses. You know, growing their their revenue, um, their cloud revenue by you know say 25-30%. Um, none of that really, or very little of that, is acquisition. That's organic, right? So when you look at or open tax. I mean, being that they are a cloud company, a software company, you know, they have been in growing markets, yet their growth in the business has, has come almost solely from acquisition. And as you said, Brett, acquisition growth in most cases is just kind of one and done, right? Like you, you acquire a bunch of revenue, you acquire a bunch of earnings, 
And then, you know, unless those new assets have organic growth, you have to go right out again next year and make, make another big acquisition in order to maintain or, or order to maintain revenue and earnings growth. So that's been the, one of the biggest issues that debt, I mean, that increase in debt from about 2.5 to 8.5 billion, that would concern me. Um, you know, a lot of these companies in the software space have very little debt or have no debt. They're actually net cash businesses. Um, you know, Microsoft, I think is close to about, a, a you know, net neutral. Um, but most of them are, are, are that we look at anyways, are actually cash rich. Um, so that's a concern. And then another thing is that I guess kind of the argument in favor of open tax in many ways over say most of the past three, four years has been, well, yeah, it doesn't have the growth of some of those other software businesses. Um, but most of those software businesses are trading at astronomically high valuations, whereas with open tax, you're getting it as a big, at a big discount. Um, but then with the, the collapse of tech sector valuations, you know, sure, it's still at a discount. Um, I mean, if you look at analyst earning, earnings expectations, um, you know, it's trading well below 10 times non-GAAP EPS, right? Which is still a big discount, but the discount is narrowed. It's not as big as it was before, right? So you, you, you know, you, you ask yourself, do you want to buy a Microsoft at 28 times or, a, you know, open text at eight? Um, for me, I would go with a Microsoft. I, yeah, I, sorry. Oh, I, I, I think that really comes down to their uh, really acquisition strategy. They're getting those mature softwares. They're not getting the next big thing like Microsoft is really looking to with their AI, their chat GPT in those sectors. Obviously, it's not cloud computing directly, but that's really where I see it. They're acquiring mature software, so you're not going to get that organic growth like we're seeing elsewhere. So it's just that fundamental operational flaw in expectations and then they're adding leverage on top of that to really they're trying to drive shareholder return through leverage but obviously that will bite you in the butt eventually and i think that is what we could see potentially with this increased leverage that we're seeing after the micro folks acquisition mm -hmm. and then that 1.5 if they're able to hit that 1.5 billion in free cash flow mm -hmm. that looks really good but how many new shares do they have to issue to get there um and then you know you're looking at a low valuation company but a company that has high debt. So you, you, you have to balance those things, right? Yep, without a doubt. It's a good summary. Thank you. Great show this week, guys. Um, we continue to encourage you to smash that subscribe button on YouTube. Smash it. Uh, and if you want to review us, rate and review us on iTunes. Continue to do that. Keep your questions coming in for our Your Stock, Our Take segment. And we'll continue to answer those on a weekly basis. And as always, I wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.